That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. And welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Tom. Hello, listeners. Tom, how are you doing? Did you have a nice weekend? I actually had rather a fun weekend, Ben. I um, I went on a Jack the Ripper walk around, um, I was going to say, it's not Whitehall, it's uh, East London and uh, Whitechapel, that's it, Whitechapel. And it was very clever because the way that it's it was structured, the uh, used Telegram, and when you got the next clue... Then the next bit of history about Jack the Ripper came up, plus the next clue. And the clues were, were meaningless until you walked around to the geographical location, you saw the street names, and suddenly you thought, oh, okay, I see, Artillery Row, that's the military reference, or whatever it may be. It was great fun. And then I had it, it got even better, Ben, because on the Sunday, uh, I was spent the happy day looking at our case data for this quarter. So I'm sure we'll talk about that in a future episode, but uh, cutting the data, playing with it, putting graphs together, looking at changes since last quarter. And I then was trying to work out, was Saturday better than Sunday? It's difficult, you know, Jack the Ripper and then data. It's very difficult to work out which of those two is better. I don't know. What do you think, Ben? Tom's nickname within the FSU, I should say, is Mr. Spreadsheets. Um, (laughs) The guy just loves Excel so much, it's unreasonable. Um, So if, if you're not, if you're still listening, if you're still listening, we will return to that topic next week. Because it is, I think it's fair to say, it's probably the most accurate breakdown of council culture. It's the most detailed data set on council culture that must exist anywhere. Um, so I think it would be a really interesting topic to return to. So we, we can we can talk about what issues are getting people in hot water most, where those battles are happening, what the employment disputes look like, which universities are particularly bad, and so on, can't we? Um, so I've had a quick scan over what, what, what you've put together, Tom, and it's really interesting. Um, yeah. So even yeah. my it really tells a story, I think, Inside. doesn't it, Ben? Yeah. As well, when you make the cut of data, you think, "Oh goodness me, it's the same as last quarter." Then you go into the detail and you realize, "Oh, this is changing, or that's changing." Um, so yeah, it's good of you, good of you to say that, Ben, to support to support what I spend my my Monday through Sunday doing. Um, but I yeah, we'll we'll come back to that at a at a, at a later date. Well, we're excited today to be joined by our colleague, Dr. Jan McVarish, who will be a familiar face to those of you who come along to our events or watch our events online. Um, Jan is, uh, well, you organise all of our events, don't you, Jan? We have a fantastic range of uh, stuff. Most recently, the Nigel Farage event where he was interviewed by Toby Young last week that uh, Tom and I were were both at. Um, So, Jan, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Good, thank you. Thanks for having me on, colleagues. So we had the Nigel Farage event last week, which was excellent. And he was talking about, um, well, a whole gamut of things from Brexit all the way uh, through to debanking and coots and the dangers of a cashless economy and all the rest of it. Um, That was really interesting. And then we have an event tonight, that's, I should say, Monday night, um, with Dr. Alka Segal-Cuthbert, whose case we've mentioned. So, Jan, what's, uh, what's going on with her? Yes, well, I'm really pleased about this event. It's a re-platforming, essentially. So 
uh, listeners might remember because we covered it in our newsletter and it received quite a lot of coverage. But a, a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Siegel Cuthbert, um, who runs the charity, the campaign group Don't Divide Us, was due to speak on a panel at an education conference called Rethinking Education in London, which was a very, a very big conference, lots and lots of different sessions designed for teachers and others involved with an interest in, in education. And she was due to speak on a panel that was discussion, discussing the difference between education and indoctrination and exploring the kind of particularly tense issues at the moment around what children should be taught, what should be on curriculum, what should, you know, the extent to which teachers' passions should come into the classroom or be kept out of it, that kind of thing. Um, and unfortunately, a few days before the event, some of the other delegates at the conference and speakers put pressure on the organiser to no platform ALCA. And, um, and the organiser didn't see that he had an option other than to do that other than disrupt the whole conference unfortunately which is the way things often work he had three days in which to try to rescue the situation uh in a in what's a very encouraging result all the fellow panelists stepped down and said well we don't want to go ahead with this session if Alka's not part of our panel um and <clears throat> when I, I i was contacted by alka and we said well why don't we try and restage the event in a couple of weeks a uh, couple of weeks time and that's what we're doing tonight so we're we're replatforming alka and the whole panel so it will be a proper debate uh, about the question of education and indoctrination and we've got a uh, room full of people, 50 people coming to um, a venue in London. And then online, we've got over 250 people joining. Uh, and what I'm particularly pleased about is that the organiser of the original conference shared the link to uh, our event, including the online event and the uh, in-person tickets to all of those who were uh, delegates at the conference. So people who didn't go along with the no platforming and were part of the conference uh, can get to hear the debate, which is just really important. And I think that's a really, really excellent result. Because I, I did have a general question, Jan. This this event obviously is a bit of a different one. It's not one that you would have planned to do because of what it was really what happened. It, 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 this happened, and we were able to step in. We were able to jump in and put this on, uh, and it was the obvious thing for us to do. But most of the time, Jan, you're planning all sorts of things for the whole year. How do you how do you kind of choose? what the next six months is going to look like or how do you choose what the next 12 months is going to look like and especially when you think about how fast paced the whole free speech world is it changes on a dime uh and suddenly an issue that we didn't see a bit like the paypal event and and financial exclusion comes out of nowhere so how do you stay fleet of foot with events while also actually having somewhere for them to take place and giving and having speakers get these things in their diary um and you don't have to give away all the secrets of the trade but how do you think about it <laughs> i would like to say that i'm planning a year in, in advance but i'm not sure that's absolutely the case although there is a cycle now of events that three years in from <laughs> when i first started uh there is a cycle of um uh, of event other people's events that we are party to we're kind of partners in or that we go along to with our stalls that that forms a kind of calendar that's repeated it just so happens that this year that most of those fall in october <laughs> so we've got uh, just a ridiculous this is flurry. The run. yeah rid ridiculous flurry of events so this weekend i was at the stp conference social democratic party conference 
which, which is I think the second time I've been to that uh, with the stall. Lots lots of members there coming up to say hello, which is always really nice. Uh, we would cover all of the party conferences, but the uh, Conservative and Labour ones are just too expensive <laughs> at the moment. And um, they, they charge a fortune to have a stall. And, um, and also they said that they didn't have any stalls available. Both parties said that to us. So the SDP are much more accommodating. So we, we were there. Um, and that that's a really it's really good to meet members and also meet people who, who've heard of us and they're saying I've, I've been meaning to join and then hopefully by meeting us in person and asking us all the questions they may have outstanding we can we can encourage them to join uh, there and then so we're doing the what else have we got uh, well we're going up to Edinburgh next week which is a, an event we've had planned for a while that's one of our regular free speech union speakeasies that we've we've I think we've had three or four at least in Edinburgh now we've got a really great venue that uh, accommodates up to about 100 people. And uh, we tend to almost fill that, which is really great. And uh, next week, we'll be there on Wednesday evening. There's still tickets available on our website, on our events page on the Free Speech Union website. And that is called Can Words Really Hurt? Which um, I'm sure members will see the relevance of that. And uh, those listening will see why that's such an important question. And it really isn't an easy question. I think in the past, I would have always just said, of course, words can't hurt, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones and names will never harm me. But clearly, in certain times and certain contexts, words really, really do uh, do harm. So um, or at least cause pain, whether they actually cause harm, long term harm is another question. And whether there's a greater merit to having those words out there than having them suppressed is, I suppose, the key question. That's what we're always trying to weigh up. Um, so that that event is also it's not quite a replatforming, but one of the, the main speaker is Professor Holly Lawford Smith, who is an academic from Australia, whose book um, on the sex and gender question uh, was almost not published, uh, but now it thankfully it has been published. I think with our help, uh, so she's coming over to the UK for a, a few weeks. So we thought we'd grab her and see if she wanted to speak in Edinburgh. And uh, she'll be joined by Kapil Suman, who's a um, writes for Scottish Legal News, I think it's called, and he's on our advisory council. And also Michael Foran, who's a legal academic at Glasgow University, and he's written extensively on e- equalities legislation. So we'll really be getting stuck into the nitty gritty as to how you balance people's right to feel not discriminated against or to not be actually discriminated against and to and to feel that they are to a degree protected to a reasonable extent in certain contexts like the workplace and elsewhere uh, with people's uh, right to freedom of expression so that i think will be a really really good discussion that's on wednesday the 25th and people can still get tickets for that if they go to our website page uh, and I'll be going up there with our new events assistant, uh, events officer Vinay Kapoor. He'll be travelling up from his university to uh, come and help me at that event. And then, Jan, it's the Battle of Ideas shortly afterwards, isn't it, on Saturday the 28th, um, which will be... Are you going to that, Tom, as well? I will be. I think it's... It, is, <laughs> is, it, is it just us? I'm there on the Saturday, and I missed it last year. And it's... Uh, it, from what I can hear, it's a... It's, it's a jam-packed um, where, weekend with sort of everyone from the free speech world in some shape or form uh, is there, has a stall, has, a, has a, uh, an event of some kind normally. Um, but I think we've got our own event there as well, haven't we, Jen? Yes, so we'll be there all after all, all afternoon, all, all weekend with a stall, which people can come and say hello to us at. Uh, but mm. also we've got a session 
uh, on uh, online censorship is there um, an international clampdown. So we're focusing on attempts at international level to restrict uh, what can be said or what can be posted on the internet. So uh, that's a very serious session with some really heavy, heavyweight speakers, which is chaired by Toby. We've got Silky Carlo from Big Brother Watch, really, really effective campaigning group. Thomas Farsi, journalist and writer. Um, Constantine Kishin from Trigonometry. And uh, Norman Lewis, who's a visiting research fellow at a think tank called MCC mm. Brussels. Uh, so that will be a really serious attempt to kind of get stuck into what the EU is doing in relation to online censorship, what other international bodies are doing in relation to online censorship and to really explore what's being called the um, censorship industrial complex and we'll be interrogating that idea as well and seeing if that kind of stacks up and is a, is a useful way of characterizing uh, what's happening but that's just one uh, one session in the whole strand and that's just one strand in a whole session a whole festival so the, the strand we're part of is the free speech uh, strand and that starts on the Saturday morning with um, a session on free speech on campus and it's exploring in particular the idea of the heckler's veto which I know you've discussed in the podcast before you know should hecklers be banned how should hecklers be dealt with when it comes to trying to have open dialogue and debates on, on campus in particular and then there's a session called the politics of hate is everyone a bigot but me <laughs> and uh, you know just exploring how the accusation of of hate is can be used as a silencing tool and how we can be encouraged to kind of um, interrogate that as well. Uh, mm. What's next? Then after that, there's an interview between Andrew Doyle and Graham Linehan. Uh, Graham Linehan, Father Ted, IT crowd, you know, comedy writer, extraordinary. So more re-platforming. Another re-platforming, yes. Um, and that will be, I think Andrew's going to obviously be talking and about Graham's new book. His book's just come out, hasn't it? That's right, Tough Crowd, um, which, yeah. you know, uh, I, Andrew will be discussing that with, with Graham. And then there's a session after hours, there's a, oh yes, after our session, there's then a live recording of Free Speech Nation, which will be great. Uh, so the GB News programme that Andrew Doyle presents on a Sunday evening will be recorded um, on Saturday afternoon. And he's got, as far as I can see, Peter Bogosian, Melissa Chen and Faisal Asaid Al-Matar, who set up a really interesting looking organisation called Ideas Beyond Borders. And that organisation translates into Arabic English texts such as George Orwell's 1984 and various writings of Thomas Paine and the like. Uh, so trying to kind of um, spread the freedom uh, message uh, more broadly around the world. So that's that's and there's more people. Neil Oliver's on that panel. Lots and lots of people are going to be joining Andrew on that Free Speech Nation session. So the trouble with Bat of Ideas is it really is an embarrassment of riches. There is so much to go and listen to, so many people to go and speak to. Um, it's fantastically interesting. I've been um, every for the last, I think, two or three years or since since COVID, certainly. Um, and uh, it's great fun as well being in the audience of the uh, Free Speech Nation recording. I was there last year for that. That was great. Uh, I think with Graham Linehan. Uh, we've got discount a discount for members if they go to our newsletters that go out every Friday and any any uh, emails that come out from Free Speech Union events in the last uh, month or so, there's a promotional code. That if they follow the link 
in that those um, emails, they can go straight to a page which has the discount, 20% discount, I think it is, already embedded in it. And then they can get discount tickets to come to the festival, either one day or two days. I was just going to say, pick up on something Ben said about a, a weekend like the Battle of Ideas being a, um, what was the phrase you used, Ben? Uh, like a riches. Of riches. Yeah. Yes, an embarrassment of riches, almost too many very good events with very good speakers all happening concurrently um, where, where you think, actually, I could have spent, you know, I've got a year's worth of events in one weekend. But I think some of the positives as a result of that is it really sharpens the thinking because you can go to one event and you can get a particular view and you think, OK, I hadn't quite looked at it like that. And you go to the next event and you, it's, it's very strange, there's a sort of an adjacency to it. You see uh, echoes and similarities that come out of discussions next door or after lunch. And very quickly, and I've found this at professional conferences, you get one or two really big themes that come out of these day-long or two-day-long festivals and sessions. And those one or two big themes can then be like the headline for the, I don't know, I don't know if there is a press release at the end of Battle of Ideas um, or a statement or anything like that, but often those statements um, write themselves by virtue of the recurring themes. So, uh, but, but it's very frustrating as an individual sometimes because you think, I wish I could go to everything, but it's all happening at once. Um, but yeah, I mean, what's has, has stuff come out of the Battle of Ideas in the past, Jan, with like that sort of new organizations or, or tracks that lead to uh, a jump or a leap in, in free speech thinking? I think, well, certainly it's the place to go to from a networking point of view and to try to sort of... Uh, uh, get up to speed on a whole range of issues um not just not just free speech but the whole spirit of the festival is about free speech and you know um free speech allowed has been the slogan for uh, forever i mean i've been i think i've been to every single battle of ideas which is going back more than 10 years um and the slogan has always been free speech allowed and it's very much the ethos of the of the conf of the festival each year is really different i mean as you can imagine when the one that happened after Brexit was very different to the one that happened before Brexit. You know, each one has got a very different flavour. Um, it's quite curious, having been to all of them. There is, they're just very different. Sometimes years ago, I remember before our current kind of more tumultuous political times, there was much more of a emphasis on culture and the arts and which will be covered now. But at the same time now, politics is just, and history is resurged and that is reflected in the conference. So there's, there, you know, obviously this year it's going to be reflecting the most difficult issues of our time, including what's been going on over the last week uh, in the Middle East. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a real test and an experiment in how you have the most difficult conversations with a very mixed audience that will mm. not agree. So I think in that sense, it's a, it's a good one for people to work out how we do this, how we do politics now. And it's, it sounds to me, Jan, like it's also a really good place for people to learn how to chair sessions. Because uh, I can, can't imagine anything harder than sitting in a, in a room full of people with all the different views that they have, with little time or, or not enough time to say everything they want, but also having to chair that session. I think I, I am always filled with admiration 
for the the chairs in these situations, managing to uh, to, to to keep an interesting conversation going. Uh, and allow all of those alternative views. Um, I think if I tried it, I'd be shutting people down. I wouldn't do it very well. <laughs> well, I'm chairing a session, actually, wearing my other hat or my old hat as a, a sociologist at the University of Kent um, in the sociology of the family. I'm chairing a session first thing Saturday on surrogacy, which I, I put on a session discussing that a number of years ago. And uh, things have moved really fast since then. And I'm anticipating a completely different mood in the room to the one that a few years ago, I think most people were kind of had a fairly benign view of surrogacy. Um, and we certainly we had a woman on the panel who's actually going to be on again this time, who has been a surrogate, I think, five times, uh, an altruistic surrogate. Uh, but obviously there are other arguments um, about surrogacy and the internationalization of it, the commercialization of it, which um, is just at the moment really, really fraught. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm boning up like crazy now <laughs> from now until the festival to make sure that I can share that in an even handed way. And I haven't made up my mind on the issue at all. I've kind of everything's been thrown up in the air more recently. So um, it's about trying to make sure that every angle is is brought forward into the room. That helps sometimes, doesn't it? If you mm. haven't made up your mind. Mm. Yeah, well, it happens more often than I than probably people imagine because I often speak with a great deal of certainty but, but behind it all is a great deal of doubt <laughs> I, uh, I spoke to a man last year an academic and um, it was actually one of the more interesting conversations I had with people there so I was just at the free speech union stool um, between sessions and, and an academic came to speak to us and he was doing some research and just refused to accept that cancel culture was a real problem or that there was any evidence for it so tom will be able to debunk that thoroughly next week when we go back to your data about the we'll have the data with us cases. yeah but yeah, ben exactly. what brought him to the uh, to the conference if he did if he i mean it's interesting it's good it's good to have all those different views but going to something like the battle of ideas and and not believing there's anything like cancel culture um must well, be unusual i, think, I imagine I, I don't want to straw man his argument too much um because I can't, I can't remember verbatim what he was saying. I mean, it was it was a year ago, but he was coming from a point of view where he was not at all sympathetic to what the FSU um, right. diagnosis of society was. But we did have a really interesting conversation, um, and I was there with a colleague, and, and she and I were talking to him about uh, the various, well, stupendous quantities of evidence that the FSU has collected showing that this is a problem, and the, the thousands of people that we've we've helped with various situations. Um, so I hope he comes back this year and uh, yeah. on the off chance he's listening to this, I, I doubt it, but if he's listening to it, come, do come and say hello and um, we'll see if we can complete the process of uh, changing his mind. But it's a great conference. It's a great event. And it's really good fun. Jan, what's, um, I think you mentioned the uh, speakeasy series of events that we've had, the, the kind of informal pub meetings that take place all across the country. Um, and there's one coming up in the southwest soon, isn't there, in November? Yes, and actually we, we've we sort of moved away from the sort of let's just get together in a pub model. So we're now doing the kind of events that we've been putting on in London around the country, so with panels, with speakers. Um, it's at, To be honest, it's actually easier to organise an event that way. I know how to do that. <laughs> Trying to find a pub that can accommodate 100 people 
is actually quite surprisingly difficult. Um, so um, we're, yeah, so our last few events in Scotland have been, you know, the same kind of events we would do in London. And we're really, really keen to try as much as we can to put on really high quality events for members around the country. At the moment, we're obviously in the regional centres. So, so far we've done events in Manchester, Birmingham, Cardiff, Brighton, uh, Edinburgh, I'm sure I'm missing somewhere, Oxford and Cambridge. Those have been the places where members have said, we'll help you if you want to organise events uh, where I am. We'd love to to come and visit. So and we've done that. And some of them we've returned to on numerous occasions. And in some of them, members have taken initiative and just organised their own events under their own umbrellas. Um, and so in Cardiff, there's a group of members that, that meet, well, not just members, they've got other people involved. There's a kind of broader, uh, independent uh, group of people who are organising around uh, free speech and having their own events. Similarly, in Brighton, there's a really lively group down there that meets every month, at least, I think, and, and organises their own debates amongst themselves with just really, 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 really good stuff. Um, but I'm really hoping that um, any members in the southwest will be able to get to Exeter on the evening of Wednesday, the 29th of November, where we'll be having our first event in the Southwest. Now, we've got a lot of members in the Southwest, and I'm always asking Tom to dive into our database and put a put a number on it just to work out how many members so far we haven't actually had a chance to meet. Um, so we are trying to pick a, a regional centre in the Southwest is not straightforward because <laughs> people are so spread out, but we thought Exeter was probably a good one to start. Mm -hmm. Um, not least because the speaker we've got at that event is Professor Doug Stokes, who is a, a lecturer at um, Exeter University, and he's written a book called Against Colonisation, Campus Culture Wars and the Decline of the West. And so Doug is going to be speaking alongside Alka Seagull Cuthbert, who um, is coming down to Exeter with us. And she and Doug will be discussing the problem with decolonisation. So the claim is often made that decolonisation is an attempt to broaden the range of ideas on offer and to kind of break away from the narrow, um, the more narrow uh, versions of the past, if you like, that have been common currency in the curriculum, on campuses, etc., and uh, in, in literature and everywhere. Uh, Doug is arguing against that and he's saying actually what this does is impose a new, even narrower orthodoxy and actually prevents us from genuinely interrogating uh, history and any kind of ideas so that's um that's on wednesday the 29th we've got a lovely venue and um we're hoping that quite a lot of the students will come down from exeter we do know quite a few student societies at exeter some of whom are being supported through the ian mctaggart program um and uh, we're hoping they'll be coming along as well so it should be a really good event and so um and some members have already got in touch with me who are from that area saying actually we'd like to volunteer and help you on the night so that's great so if anybody else wants to uh offer to do that as well then they can email events at freespeechunion.org and let me know what's important there jan i mean a lot of the time we look at the data of where our members are and we are without a doubt we are southeast and london focused in terms of geography and quite rightly our members come to us from other parts of the country and say we need to see you, you're, you're very Lundo-centric. And, and there's a sense in some of the Westminster stuff that we do, 
Of course we are. Um, and it's obviously the demographic, um, demographically, um, it's the capital and, and, and there are all good reasons for having lots of things in the southeast. But the fact you've mentioned Edinburgh, um, I think we, we, we've got Manchester where we had a speakeasy. And now you've mentioned the southwest. I think going back to your point about how you plan the year, there's no doubt that you are addressing, I think, that potential accusation or not accusation but um that we are too lundo centric we're definitely trying to get free speech events out beyond london it's, it's fair to say isn't it jan yeah and i'm now planning um so in end of january we're planning an event in manchester uh, which toby's going to come and speak at that's uh, in the brewing stage and then also, we're going to go to Belfast, which is the first time we've ventured over um, over there. And that, again, I think Toby's going to be coming to that. And we're, I'm just working on a panel of speakers. I've been talking to Andrew Doyle about that to see if he would be able to come and join us in that. Uh, so that would be really interesting. So the thing I love about <laughs> this job <laughs> is that there's always a new challenge of trying to get up to speed with any particular um, regional variations in the way free speech is um, free speech issues arise and obviously Northern Ireland there are very particular issues up there same as in Scotland so that's great. Well thank you very much Anne for that rundown of all the events that people can forward to in the next couple of months. I hope we've proven the point we were talking about uh, not being too London centric of course that has to be the focus of political activity but we have members and indeed staff members of the FSU all over the country. So, uh, Tom, you're the you're the liberal metropolitan elite in London. I am. And uh, I'm here in my hobbit hole in Wiltshire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that hobbit that hole. That, that evokes so much. I, I wish I could be Gandalf. If we're going to go down into the world of Lord of the Rings, I would hope I could be a, a, a wizard at least. But uh, you as a hobbit, I, you're too tall, Ben. You're too tall for a hobbit. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I think at six foot three, I would actually struggle quite a lot in the Hobbit Hole. But I, I like being in the depths of rural England, and it's nice that the FSU has that balance, I think. Um, and yeah. uh, I'll be at the Exeter event. Uh, it was where I went to university, so I'm quite excited to go back down to Devon. Uh, very beautiful. And also to meet some of the students there. So Jan was saying about the, uh, mentioned very briefly, the McTaggart programme. And that's something that Jan and I co-direct. And this is our grant giving programme for students and student societies that I think we've spoken about before. Um, and uh, it's going phenomenally well. We really have some impressive young people. And I sound like a uh, member of a parochial church council trying to encourage young people to come to church when I, when I say that, when I use that phrase. Uh, but we do have some really impressive... Have we, got a, have we got a band with guitars yet? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they, uh, to use some corporate speak, we have some impressive young people coming through the pipeline um, who are not the woke, censorious, monomaniacal zealots uh, that uh, people fear their, their entire generation are. Uh, so that's very encouraging. But Tom, we're going to talk about the, uh, the big news stories still, aren't we, of... Israel, yeah. Hamas, Palestine, the protests in London and indeed in cities across, um, well, across yeah. the world, uh, across Western Europe and North America and so on. Um, and the FSU have put out a statement that Toby authored last week. And I think one of the, well, perhaps the theme of that statement has been the hypocrisy in the way in which this issue is treated. So we've had years of microaggressions on university campuses and 
the quelling of any possible upset to people's feelings by university administrators and also in employment settings as well. Um, but with this issue, there's a very different standard that's being applied. Yeah, I thought that was that was right at the heart of the statement that Toby made. And uh, it reminded me of some of the conversations we've, we've had about the great homogenization. Every time I say that word, Ben, I get it wrong. <laughs> Homogeneity, homogenization um, of all these issues. And just pick up on Black Lives Matter, for example, and critical race theory. There is um, one view of that that is allowed in the mainstream, really, now, and it, ironically enough, is not the Martin Luther King view of race. And we've lived with that and our members have lived with that. And people who sought our help have lived with that homogenization of, of, of that issue. Uh, right to the point of the Sean Corby case um, and the win that we talked about a few episodes again ago, whereby actually there is the Martin Luther King view of race and uh, court has ruled that we're allowed to hold that. Um, and uh, we were all kind of talking about why did we have to go to court to, to, to have another view on an issue that is um, that has multiple facets to it. And this issue, Israel-Palestine, is the one issue that has a real heter heterogeneous set of views on it. I mean, you can't really say anything on the issue without getting um, hot under the collar, either oneself or the person you're talking to is getting hot under the collar. And that's fine. That's free speech. But there is um, a recognition here that we just don't get anywhere else of heterogeneity. There's a double, a double standard. I mean, in some ways, the silence of the corporate world, I wish we had that silence on the other issues. You know, let, let the corporate world be silent on Israel-Palestine. Let, let it not take a view. Um, but it must be consistent. It can't be forcing what it is currently forcing uh, on all these other issues and saying um, staff members can only take one view or staff members, um, if they say the wrong thing, is I don't know, take as an example, uh, Christians standing up to LGBT uh, ideology or views, uh, they are immediately told, no, you can't have those views, you can't hold those views, you certainly can't express those views. Uh, I would rather we actually got the corporate world back to a point of, getting on with being the corporate world. Um, but I don't know what you feel about that, Ben. Well, I think there is this strange double standard. I think policing is probably the best way, uh, the, be the best prism through which to view this. And if you look at the offences, in inverted commas, for which people have been arrested or uh, in indeed prosecuted for, you know, putting stickers up about women's rights or the woman who had a collection of essays seized from her home, um, essays that contain gender-critical content, and so on. I mean, we, we could talk for hours about just listing off examples of, of women and men as well, indeed, who'd been arrested or had some kind of visit from the police along the lines of what Harry Miller had of someone coming to check his thinking um, because of their views about the trans debate. And, that, and yet when you see the extremes of the protests that have taken place particularly over the weekend there does just seem to be a double standard where there's been this great search for the last five ten years to find hate crimes with which to occupy police forces um, and yet when you get mo the most blatant manifestations of ethnic or religiously mo and religiously motivated hatred um, 
the police do seem to be much more reluctant to get involved and I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to wade into the content of the dispute, the conflict between Israel and Palestine and Hamas, um, because that's not something where the FSU is required to have a, a corporate view about the content of the issue. Um, and as you were saying, Tom, th- this is something that that's very peculiar. That that universities, for instance, after the death of George Floyd, if you were at a university at that time as a student or academic, you would have been inundated with messages offering consolation talking about how awful the killing was um and so on now of course the footage is disturbing to watch it is deeply unsettling um but it's also something that happened thousands of miles away over which british universities have no influence or or power and yet we saw this massive ideological drive towards decolonization anti-racism and so on um and quite clearly, and I, I made this point on Twitter or X the other day, that there has not been a deluge of statements from universities following the murder of 1,400 now, 1,400 Jews, uh, and indeed others, in Israel by Hamas. Um, and so we do have this peculiar situation, this sinister situation, I would say, where some things are deemed to be non-political because they are thought to be obviously morally correct. So anti-racism, for instance, is deemed to be obviously morally correct. It's not contentious uh, until the Forstatter ruling. Likewise, the uh, the view that gender identity is fluid and that you can change your gender was deemed to be an, ob- an obvious moral progression and moral insight and likewise not political. We had the case of Anna Thomas in the civil service where a certain set of views about race, again, were deemed to be not political, whereas, in fact, the civil service should be bound by its duty of uh, political impartiality when dealing with these hot-button contentious social issues. So it's it's this strange and mysterious process by which some things are uh, siphoned off and deemed to be uh, obvious moral goods, and some things are deemed to be politically contentious, and there doesn't seem to be any empirical, rational, consistent standard when that decision-making process is being made. Um, and that means in terms of, to, to boil all of that away, to come to the nub of a free speech argument, the nub of the free speech point here, that means that if you are within one of these institutions, you really don't know what the rules are. Is it the rule that you can bring your whole self to work and manifest your views? Or is it the case that you should not talk about politics you should not talk about israel palestine you should not talk about george floyd and black lives matter at work which is it and for a long time it's been apparent but this has been crystallized over the last week that there are unwritten rules that some issues you are expected to have a proactive view on and others you must not discuss or you must not certainly express a contrary view and that is a complete minefield that is impossible to navigate because it's completely irrational I, I I think um, that's a really interesting characterization of it, um, Ben. Especially boiling it down to the free speech issue, which is which is what are the rules and where are the rules? And I have I, one of the articles I read over the weekend, and I'm sure we've all been reading different articles from different perspectives in the last few days. Describe this as a reverse George a reverse George Floyd moment, which is sort of what you were hinting at there, um, where there was a lot of volume, a lot of volume after George Floyd. There's not been 
anything like the same uh, level uh, of volume in the same way uh, after the original atrocities in Israel. And we talked about the BBC and, and, and it, it spread across a lot of the, the corporates. But, you know, it's so difficult, isn't it, as well on this issue, uh, not to get partisan very quickly or to seem partisan. And, and so I think that is something I personally struggle with. Um, and uh, when we talk about what are the rules, I am as, at as, as much at a loss uh, as to what the rules are, as to what what one can and what one cannot say um, about this. But I think one of the one of the ways I think about it is to say, okay, well, I'm not going to dive into a view on Israel Palestine. However, I can think about London and I can think about um, our culture. And we we talked about multiculturalism and we talked about free speech in um, the United Kingdom and, and in London. And I think that's where the interesting discussion takes place. Um, and as you say, this this double standard potentially of the police uh, and the way they protest different groups, it comes back to your point of different client groups within society having direct relationships um, while the individual doesn't have quite the same rights anymore. And and there's, there's I think in some ways, a, another part of this is Warren Buffett famously said, it's only when the tide goes out that you see who was swimming naked, i.e. it's only, and that was in a financial context, whereby during the 2008 crisis, the financial crisis, it became clear that a lot of companies were using interesting accounting, shall we say, uh, to move capital around. There was a subprime crisis, no one realised what that meant or the in, contagion that that would lead to and Warren Buffett's point was the tide's gone out the music stopped playing now we can see who was hiding things on their balance sheet now we can see who was hiding things on their profit and loss account and I think it's the same when we talk about what what happened last weekend suddenly we we see behind the curtain and we get a sense of what these institutions where they're coming from what they will um, send missives around 50,000 staff for and what they won't send missives around 50,000 staff for what is their kryptonite and it seems it seems as though this this is almost like a kryptonite issue for institutions it's it's too much of a hot potato uh, well if this is too much of a hot potato why the devil have you been wading into um issues of women's rights and taking one view why the devil have you been wading into uh, racial uh disputes and racial arguments why have you been politicizing the workplace on everything else but you decide this is this is too hot for you um so that that's what really strikes me is that the tide's gone out and we've we see now who was swimming who was swimming naked and there is a striking lack of moral and philosophical inconsistency um and again i say all of this without commenting on the content of the geopolitics of the issue itself and i think it's probably worth pointing out that the free speech union has defended people with all sorts of different views within the law on israel palestine on this set of questions um but uh, things have emerged as you've put it as that tide has gone out which have exposed the excesses of decolonization for all to see if you weren't already paying attention and the moral inconsistency. I mean, there's one example I'd give that I, I saw the writer Ed Wester put on Twitter earlier talking about the policing, uh, that a man who tried to set fire to a flag on the cenotaph in 2020 was spared jail 
in contrast to the four months a man received for a George Floyd joke in a private WhatsApp group. So those words of Ed West, I think that captures perfectly the minefield that I've just described that we've been talking about, uh, where nobody knows what the rules are. And in a workplace particularly, this is this is just a recipe for complete disaster. And I completely see the case of a manager who says, like, I just don't want any contentious issues discussed on the shop floor. I don't want any talk of that. This is nothing to do with work. Keep it at home. That's fine. But of course, you can't then say, oh, except for issues A, B and C, where these are our, these are our corporate values and we expect you to have a certain view of race or trans or whatever. And that, of course, is what people who contact the Free Speech Union for help are finding that they're having to navigate. And we've devalued the spaces where the debates happen. We, we've, we've said um, people's safety must come first, psychological safety. And so places where quite robust debates were happening um, in universities is an obvious example. I remember the sorts of things that we discussed openly in, um, at Cambridge. I mean, I, I remember one particular evening uh, I went to a talk by a, a minister who said, does God love gays? It was advertised in the college. It was advertised uh, all over different colleges. And there was absolutely no controversy about whether that conversation should take place. I mean, there were, there were gay people who went, there were Christian people who went, there were everything in between. And it was a very open, quite robust conversation. And that was... Uh, that was that was an interesting evening to have. But can you imagine that debate happening today? Um, we've lost it. We've lost that space for the debates to happen. Where you then learn what the rules are, when you then learn what the um, Overton window is, and you slowly prize the Overton window open to a healthy point. Uh, not wanting to mix my metaphors, you know, sort of open up the Overton window and let in some fresh air, um, because there is there's certain there's definitely a point beyond which you know public debate uh, certain certain things are are beyond the pale, and we we know that we know that list of of issues or items or or or, or such like, but it's closed to such an extent now that that it's having this um, terrible effect on public debate. And it's making people feel so frustrated that they can't express their view. They can't express how they feel about an issue. They can't express how they feel about what they see on the streets of London on a Saturday or a Sunday. They're, they're, they're too scared to, 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 to speak up. And that's on all sides. That's on all sides. Um, and of course, if you don't speak, you don't disinfect those emotions and you don't disinfect that, that frustration. And people find other ways of, of, of talking that are less healthy. And, um, and that's worrying because the rules are changing. The debating spaces are going. Um, there's a homogeneity. Um, and my concern here, Ben, is that we've had a few moments like this. Obviously, we had the Ukraine-Russia moment. We actually had COVID moment when people said, oh, this must be the end of the culture wars because something of real substance has happened. The Ukraine-Russia war has happened. That was of substance. And obviously, what's happening right now is a huge, big issue. And it affects all sides. All sides get very emotional about it. And you'd think that all of the culture wars go into the back pocket. You'd think that the, 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 the silliness of the woke discussions and the woke philosophies, which are ridiculous, frankly, they are utterly pathetic, 
when you compare it to what's really going on on the ground. You'd think, you'd think they would be put down the list of priorities, but will they be? Uh, one of the reasons that the ability to have those conversations is broken down is that um, liberal democratic systems are not static or indeed particularly solid. They require something inhuman to tolerate people whose existence you find provocative to allow arguments that you find to be harmful to be heard um, and to suffer all of this to take place in an open society is not something that is easy or which commends itself to human nature it's something that's incredibly difficult and you can measure that you can prove that point very easily by looking at the uh, the existence of liberal democracies against the span of human history. They're a brief, flickering moment. And the great danger is that all of our debates become like the discussion of Israel-Palestine, which is by its nature tribal, Isaac and Ishmael. It is the most tribal matter in geopolitics, in politics that exists today. Um, and that's why people stop applying the same moral standards because you do not apply the same moral standards to your tribe that you demand of others and that's why the whole matter becomes so heated and so vituperative um but the, i think there is a danger and we see this with all sorts of cultural debates where it has stopped being a conversation within a liberal democracy and it has become two tribes of people battering away at each other um and it's it's increasingly not about trying to change people's minds it's about trying to capture control of institutions and that seems to be what has happened to me. Now, I think um, we, what you say is, is, is quite deep, actually. And, and certainly that point that liberal democracy is unusual and therefore, by, by, by implication, free speech, our sort of reason, our raison d'etre as the free speech union is extremely unusual. It's, a, it's another flickering moment, a spark of light. Um, that is lost all too easily. And I, I remember that book, uh, The History of Free Speech, um, which talked about uh, Athens, which came into being as a democratic city. And uh, within a generation or two, it, it wasn't democratic anymore. The, the demos, that idea upon which we, we always look back as liberal as liberal democracies to that moment in Athens to say that was the beginning of democracy. And it was, you know, it was a huge big moment, but it was temporary. Look at the Roman um, Republic, a temporary moment, and then it became an empire again. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right what you say about human nature as it's sort of propagated through history. Uh, things that seem quite innocuous in history books uh, when you actually go back and look at them were normally violent, were normally tribal, were normally... Um, the very antithesis of uh, liberal, democratic, and free speaky. Uh, all the more reason, I think, for doubling down on our values in the West, our values of liberal, uh, democratic, and free speech, the Enlightenment values, and, and not being swayed from that course, however hard it gets. And I don't think it actually gets harder than finding, picking our way through what's what's happening right now and what's happened over the last week uh certainly i've agonized over the different elements of it and i've taken a step back from it at times and said you know what this is actually too hard a nut for me to crack 
Um, and it's also it's not on me to to crack the nut. And, but it, but it is on us to play our small part in in defending and reiterating and underlining the sort of the weapons that will get us through. I say weapon, I mean free speech. I mean the wep- the pen is mightier than the sword, and and the speaker is mightier ultimately um, than any. Uh, militant or terrorist or whatever you want to call them. And so I think that is trite. It sounds trite. It sounds reductionist. Uh, But it's a little part of what I can do is carry on absolutely convinced that free speech and liberal values will in some way get us to a better place. It doesn't mean a good place, but it may well be a better place. Uh, than what it would otherwise be. Well, I agree with the previous speaker. And I think I have nothing more to add. I think that's a perfect note on which to end. I think goodbye from me. Have a good week. <laughs>